Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, along with our co-host and the former New York City, what was, what was the title, Pops? The conflict resolution coordinator, and I led a crisis response team in a, di- in a high school district of 23 high schools. Right, right. Very impressive. Very impressive. That's my dad, Ronnie Nathan, and very grateful to be co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. Uh, I had my father share what his uh, vocational experience is because it's relevant to today's episode, which uh, if you like it, please subscribe, review, and comment to uh, our podcast. It really helps us out and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And without further ado, our guest today is Michael Gulker, who is president of the Colossian Forum, which we'll learn a lot more about uh, in this conversation. Much like us, he has a long-standing interest in the oft-times contentious intersection of faith and culture. In particular, you might have read recently in publications like the Wall Street Journal about the program they've, they've developed at the Colossian Forum that helps churches facilitate healthier conversations around politics and other difficult issues. Michael is a native of West Michigan. He studied philosophy and theology at Calvin College, has a divinity degree from Duke Divinity School. We're big fans of Duke specifically Duke Divinity School, Mm -hmm. and is an ordained Mennonite pastor. And before coming to TCF, Michael served as pastor of Christ Community Church in Des Moines, Iowa. Michael, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, let's dive right in. In a uh, recent conversation we had with another Duke Divinity, we've had now had four that that were associated with Duke Divinity's uh, Samir Yadav, a good friend of mine, Tommy Givens, and Amy Laura Hall. Amy, uh, yeah. Great. So, yeah. So in a recent conversation with Samir, he described his experience as at a conservative Christian seminary. Uh, when he began to inquire about the context of certain material being presented, read the reference material and responses to that material, and started to ask earnest questions and wrestle with those positions, he was treated as if... and. This is um, incredibly erudite academic language. He was treated as if he farted in an elevator. (laughs) (laughs) So I I heard you say that you grew up in a church where the expectation was you were supposed to have it together, um, where you weren't supposed to wrestle with questions. Yeah, it was it was kind of a mark of um, of holiness to to have answers to questions, not to raise questions. Um, I grew up in a in a in a Calvinist uh, world, many beautiful, wonderful things about it, but there's a, at least this, the pocket that I grew up in, um, you kind of, there were two expectations. One, to sort of have your systematic theology ducks in a row. You, you, you know, there's a big emphasis in, in Calvinist circles of catechizing the young into the faith. And then there was also a component of, you know, a good systematic theology ought to have lead to a good systematic life. 
and messes weren't really something we wanted to have. Some of it's some of it's Midwestern too, kind of Midwest nice, you know. Yeah. How did you recognize that schism, if you will, or that there was a problem with that? And at what point did you decide to start to grapple with some of these big questions? Yeah. Um, mostly when I felt a divide in my own soul between who I was supposed to be and who I felt like I was, right? So as a teenager, you've got all these rebellious impulses and you know frustrations, and yet I was supposed to be this ideal on Sunday, and I went to a Christian elementary and middle school and high school. And so I just felt this rift between who I was and who I was pretending to be. And I, at the time, I, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't have any idea how systemic that was about how deep it ran that like everybody was feeling that I just, I just didn't know. I just felt like it was just me. And um, as I started to, to raise questions, uh, they were often tamped down. And that just, that just made me angry. I just became more and more angry, which drove that divide deeper, right? It drove the divide between me and God or me, the church or me or me and what it meant to be faithful even deeper. And as that, as that anger built, um, it became evident that there was no space. There was no space to, to hammer it out. And, and I remember um, one elder of a church who I know dearly loved me and was, was doing her level best to guide and mentor me. But she just said at one point, you know, I just don't think this is a place that we can handle your questions. You probably need to find another place to, to worship. And wow. to me, that was the exact opposite of what I wanted, right? I wanted somebody to wrestle with me. I wanted somebody to, to help me figure out the, the gap between who I, who I was and who I thought I was supposed to be. And, and the older I got, the more I came to realize that that gap was in the whole culture. So then that gap made me feel like I'm not a hypocrite. The whole thing's hypocritical. Can you be specific and identify one issue so that we can get, put some, some, some muscle on those bones. So I know what you're talking about. The, the main one I would just say would be um, the very frustration at the hypocrisy. So if I would just say, I know, I know we talk about this on Sunday, but the rest of the week, X, Y, and Z, um, we don't act that way. We don't talk that way. The way that we treat each other in the home and the way that we treat each other at the Christian school is not the same that we talk about it on Sunday. In what way? In, in my home, um, there was often a lot of anger and fighting and there was just, it wasn't a Ozzie and Harriet, right? Um, it was a typical, it was a typical home with a lot of tensions in it. Um, my parents didn't always get along. They, they came close to having, getting divorced at one point in my life. And there was no place that was, you, you didn't talk about that at church. You did not talk about your struggles at church. You didn't talk about your brokenness. And, and, and for me, it was often my anger. I would be angry at these things and I would, that anger would come out. It's like, no, no, no. Anger is not a valid emotion. That, that's not allowed. Good Christians aren't angry people. Um, good Christians are calm and polite and, and so forth. Yeah, Dad. Remember, uh, Tommy and I talked about that. The um, there was this facade, if you will, that was necessary to put on our class. That where Tommy and I met was uh, it was a young marriage class at the church where his dad was the main pastor for a long for about twenty twenty five years. I even visited that class a couple of times. I know. Yeah, that was uh, a <laughs> that was fun. Um, but yeah, I mean 
there was sort of this prevailing attitude of we, our kids are good looking, they're getting good grades, they're the best at their sport. Um, and that's proof that we're right about this whole Christian thing. Yeah. And, you know, it, the two sides of that equation sort of fed each other. You know, there was a necessity to have all that. Meanwhile, you know, we were, we were intervening um, for, you know, a husband suffering from PTSD who had just come back from Iraq. You know, how many of those marriages are still intact? How many? Yeah. How many of those marriages are still intact? I think only four of about 12. Um, Okay. Yeah, it was. Yeah. But, you know, I think, I think if we had better equipment to do life together and grapple with the real questions together, I, I wonder if some of them might still be together, you know, mm-hmm. not, not saying that we had it all wrong, but there was that pressure that created, you know, those fissures and, and those cracks. And it, it just made it impossible to really reckon with all the just usual stuff that, that yeah. life throws your way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I would say that um, the fact that my parents' marriage survived was in spite of the church, not because of the church, mm, Yeah, that the church actually made it far more difficult to, to process what they needed to process. And, and I, I kind of feel the same way. Um, and, and these are well-meaning people who I, to this day, still love and respect, but their, their intentions didn't, didn't work. Um, the fact that I'm still a Christian is in spite of my experience, not because of. Yeah. So, so I, I just, I don't think um, what was going on was a, was a space for real souls to wrestle with the real world. It was a, it was a place to put on a show and to, like you said, you know, um, kids are good looking, they're going to get good jobs, they're going to contribute to society, and they'll probably vote Republican. And all of those should go together in a package. Yeah. 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 And that's, that, that was one of my other questions is how it, it pervaded out, not just into theological issues, you know, young earth creationism, old earth, all, all the usual, you know, stuff, but it pervaded out into, you know, what teams we root for. I, I heard somebody espouse my wife's from Alabama and I heard a really strong argument that real Christians are roll tied and only fake Christians are war Eagle, <laughs> you know, and they, they were only half joking, <laughs> you know, but I mean, obviously politics, which we'll talk a lot more about today is, is a whole other yeah. We're, we're seeing there's not a day that goes by that I don't see somebody on some thread somewhere saying you, you can't possibly vote Democrat and call yourself a Christian, you yeah. know, or some version of that or vice versa. Um, so what happened to you at Journey, Michael? Wait, 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 Dad, hold on. Not allowed to do that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more interested in him than you, Corey. Sorry. I was going to ask. I was going to ask. Okay. So now I wonder why I brought you onto this thing. Anyway, so Michael, uh, Calvin College, where you did your undergrad, was described in your recent years as a cop. So when I first saw Calvin, I thought, well, yeah, he Calvinist. I made that connection, but it was described as a college where intellectual diversity and thought-provoking de- debate are the norm and where the belief that followers of Christian reform of the Christian reformed church have an obligation to engage with the world around them, uh, have an obligation to engage with the world around them compels both instructors and students to question what they think they know. Was that your experience at Calvin? My experience at Calvin was, was fantastic for the most part. So I came into Calvin frustrated and with this sense of duplicity 
with kind of what, what I heard the gospel was supposed to be about in terms of this gracious and loving God, and yet not being a part of a gracious and loving community, but, but a very kind of rigid, you have to have it together community. And so when I got to Calvin, it was really, I didn't want to go there. I didn't plan to go there. I, I kind of wanted out. Um, but, you know, I, I was elect, uh, apparently. <laughs> and, uh, and they helped me discover the beauty and coherence of the faith, both from an intellectual and uh, perspective. And then in how, it, of course, colleges are very good places to explore hard questions, right? So all of a sudden I had a place to wrangle and wrestle in a way that I didn't, I didn't have in the church. And so in that way, it really was fantastic. And I, I think quite highly of the institution to this day. However, um, they, they also kind of have this model uh, from, from uh, Reinhold Niebuhr of Christ transforming culture. This is a, this basic uh, Calvinist model of, of, of you, you go to church on Sunday, you kind of get, you get your shtick and you under, your understanding of the world, the correct worldview, and then you go out and you transform culture. And despite the amazing experience at Calvin, my broader experience of, of life in the city where Calvin was, and even at Calvin, was that culture was more transforming Christ than, other, than the other way around. Calvin is a great place to go to build a social uh, and professional network. Calvin is a great place to go to get the best education. Calvin is a great, right? So, so all of these notions of excellence have not been transformed by Christ. They've been transformed by the culture. Again, my experience was 20 some years ago. And so I still had this sense that the traffic was flowing the wrong way. So again, I came up through this whole Christian reform educational system from kindergarten on where we were constantly told that the way to transform culture was to be the best and, and best those, those were, those were secular categories, right? They were power, they were influence. They were the ability to win arguments really was a big part of it. Um, prestige. And then of course, a sort of moral fiber that you could, you could exude. And so, um, so I still had this sense that, that with Christ transforming culture, that that model was flowing, that, that, that the traffic was flowing in the wrong direction. Yeah. So you did an MDiv at Duke Divinity School. What was it about Duke that led you to do your, your graduate work there? Yeah. Um, so I, I talked about this, the sort of shortcomings of the Christ transforming culture model. When I read Resident Aliens, oh, yeah. that was the first time I ever encountered some notion of what it meant to be a peculiar people, what it meant to, what it, what it meant to have the Sermon on the Mount be your criterion of success instead of these other secular. And of course, you know, Harwas and Willimon in that book are just pissed off enough to attract a young pissed off 20 year old. <laughs> right. And, um, and, and what also happened was in my senior seminar at Calvin, I wanted to do a lot of work on, on Harwas because I was reading him and he and John Howard Yoder. And I was basically told that, we didn't read sectarian Anabaptists in a reformed institution. Oh, and, and, uh, <laughs> that, that just didn't sit right with me. And, um, Oh, that's right. Yoder was a Mennonite, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And was, so the normal path was, was Princeton or Yale. That's where Calvinists go. And so I, I kind of took it with a, a little bit of, um, devilish glee to go off. <laughs> with uh, with the sectarian Anabaptist influenced Tower Was. Um, yeah, so I was really attracted to, I didn't know it at the time, but sort of the post-liberal frame and then the, 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 the Anabaptist influence um, and this notion of being a peculiar people. Jews are very used to that feeling. 
<laughs> I would for, imagine. Yeah. It's the space we've been occupying for 2000 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the Constantinian critique, the critique of Const Constantinianism, right. Was so powerful to me because that was the only experience I'd ever had is, was being in power. And so that, that notion of a peculiar people was completely alien to me which is really mind-blowing when you think of what's actually in the text. You use terms Anabaptist and refer to Mennonite. For listeners who might not know, could you give us a, a, a snapshot of what you're referring to? Sure. So the Anabaptists were a, a part of the Reformation or sometimes called the Radical Reformation uh, that, that um, believed that the connection between the church and the state was deeply problematic. They saw that baptism was essentially a, a social security card. It was baptism and citizenship were the same. And they, they, they thought that the Sermon on the Mount was, was, was the politics for Christians. And so they, they did grasp onto this peculiar people. And there were all kinds of excesses that got them sort of labeled as crazy. And some of the reasons were good. But they also um, were killed. They were martyred often because they, they actually offended against the state. And so they, they ended up in part because of that early experience focusing on a sort of a, a very pacifist posture, right? So if you're being killed, you kind of ca capture <laughs> pacifism becomes attractive. Sermon on the Mount is being your politics, your, your actual community politics, and then recognizing that that took a different kind of voluntary community of living together around those practices. And uh, Mennonites are just one, one um, sort of stream of Anabaptism more generally. Yeah. Can you summarize the politics of the Sermon on the Mount in 25 words or less? <laughs> um, I'll give you 30 words. No, no, I actually think it's, it would be for me the Beatitudes, but it would be to love your enemy would be sort of, sort of the heart of it. What, what does it mean to love your enemy? And what's, what's entailed in that? The kind of, the kind of, what kind of God must you believe in? If you believe that, it's worthwhile to love your enemy unto your own death. Mm. So that to, me, that to me is the politics of Jesus. Yeah. And so, so resurrection is, um, is presumed and it's, it's, it's the sacrificial love of God that leads to life that is presumed. And that, that is what opens up a fresh politics. And I think the Beatitudes exemplify that fresh politics. That was, I don't know how many words that was. It was too many words, but. <laughs> no, no, that was great. That was, that's powerful. And it, it also is a good uh, teaser uh, of the work that you're doing right now. That's very much at the heart mm -hmm. of the work that you're doing right now. Um, before we talk about that, before going to Colossian form, you were first a pastor. Um, mm -hmm. Was that what you thought you'd be, That was that the long trajectory? Was that the long game in more of like a church pastor role or? Did you already have an inclination toward the work you'd eventually be doing with uh, TCF? I had no idea. Um, I had, when I went to Duke, I had no intention of being a pastor. I thought I would do a PhD and uh, I was even accepted into the program, but there were, there were hangups with funding and, and, and so forth. But what, what I was convicted by was that everything I learned at Duke was telling me that theology wasn't primarily an ivory tower affair. Uh, although very important things could happen there, but it was meant to serve the church. And I did an internship at the church I ended up serving where I was invited to 
to try to use what I'd learned to serve concretely on the church with the church to build up the church and its local incarnation rather than stay in the academy. And that I just didn't know how to turn that kind of an invitation down. It just seemed the, the right trajectory. It seemed to embody everything that I was learning. One of the most formative, impactful two hours of my life was one time I, I was visiting Tommy at Duke and we crashed one of uh, Jay Cameron Carter's classes. And uh, it was a discussion about the body of Christ. And um, he tied it into uh, some Hebrew Bible, uh, I think in Psalms. Um, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I've talked about this before, but, but the first 45 five hours of the class was about jazz and he was connecting, you know, Naima. Sounds like Jay. <laughs> yeah. And Monk and Coltrane, how they work together and comparing that to the body of Christ. It was just great. He yeah. wrapped up the two hours or so with all this theologizing and highfalutin stuff. I, I don't know exactly how he put it, but, he said, it don't mean nothing if, you're, if your buddy's grandma's in the hospital. You got to go sit with your buddy. You got to go visit his grandma, you know? So it was putting, talk about putting meat on them bones, you know? Yeah. That's, that's where the rubber meets the road. So. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. And I, um, I, had a, I had an inclination that everything I'd learned could serve in those moments. They could actually help to make sense of those moments, help to cast vision, for why people would want to live into those moments. I, I really didn't have any inkling that it would lead to the Colossian Forum, but. Yeah. So were you one of the founders of Colossian Forum? I was. Um, I actually, I spent five years at this church in Iowa and it was some of the richest time of my life, but also quite painful because I discovered the limits of my education. Uh, I was, despite <laughs> the sort of, pacifist leanings or pacifist doctrine that I was taking in, I still lived to win arguments, even if I had to be violent to win them. Um, it's, a, it's an odd thing to argue for pacifism violently, but, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I came into a congregation that had a long history of conflict and despite everything I'd learned, I, I found that I wasn't equipped to actually help them. And the more they loved each other, the more it seemed to hurt. And I, I, I left there after five years, very, very sad and discouraged at my inability to be more helpful and thought I would go back and do a PhD because clearly I was lousy at this pastoral thing. And a friend of mine kind of by the name of Kurt Behrens, he, he pulled me aside and said, you know, your experience of failure and the limits of your education might actually be a gift that is worth spending some time exploring because it seems like the church has been doing a certain kind of education of its leaders for a long time. That's coming up short because the church is continuing to rip itself apart. Maybe, maybe we could spend some time thinking about what it would mean to help the church do better in the middle of conflict. And so uh, I can't claim to be the original visionary. I was, I was one of three or four folks and um, I just ended up being the, the one that was executing on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I heard you say in one interview or uh, one of the videos I watched, we find hope when we stop trying to win and we start laying down our lives. And it really resonated with me. I've often thought of the poetry, the beauty, and the irony that Christ's path to victory was through the cross, not through the Roman army or even a single Roman sword, but through the cross. It's sort of an upside down victory. Mm -hmm. 
um, as biblically sound of a principle that is, it's not what seems to be the norm, as we've been talking about in the church that you grew up in, or certainly over the last four or five years, a different sort of peacocking is, is more the norm, right? So um, I'm wondering what your, you visited and worked with a lot of different churches now, I'm wondering what your, what your vibe on that is. Over the past decade, um, we have worked with all kinds of Christians from a variety of different political, theological, ecclesiological, sociological, economic strata, uh, different educational levels. And um, there, there's a lot of anxiety in the church. There's a lot of anxiety in Christian academies. Um, it's contracting. We're losing membership. And when people are anxious, it's, it's, uh, they have a hard time embracing something like lay down your life. They feel like they have to win. And that, that absolutely having to win expresses itself differently from the right and from the left. So from the right, if somebody says, rather than winning the argument, you need to lay down their life. They're like, but what about truth? You know, truth matters. Well, actually laying down your life is to testify to the deepest truth that Christians hold, which is through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, the world is reborn. Right. And so we participated in that. So it's not, it's not one or the other. And then on the left, it's, it's kind of like, I'm, I can't concede that point because that would mean to undo justice, right? We can't talk anymore. We can't, we have to win because justice hangs on it. So you've got truth hanging on on one side and justice hanging on it and the other. And uh, this is why I love Psalm 85 when, when righteousness and peace shall kiss, right? <laughs> I mean, justice and truth and righteousness and peace are all coming together and we've lost that capacity in large part because I, I believe that we're convinced that if we don't win the argument, we lose the day. Instead of realizing that Christ has already won and he's won in a way that he invites us to follow. And so um, laying down, if not our lives, at least our arguments, that is not to give up on our truth claims or our, our calls for justice, but actually to embody it in a uniquely Christ Christological and cruciform way. Uh, and to witness to the truth instead of arguing for it. Um, I think it's easier to argue for truth than it is to embody it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, when I, before I became a Christian in the first decade or so of my time as a Christian, I was a student of some great apologists and that a lot of it, a lot of the worst kind of it was simply that simply treating it like gamifying these conversations you know the best versions of it were conversations that may have started with a challenge like why do all you christians you know so and such and such you know and as opposed to saying well they must not be real christians or using some other sort of tactic to evade the question or shoot down the question um, the best types of responses were something along the lines of yeah, that's a problem, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Something I wanted to ask you about, and I, I know my dad's curious about this too. I've read studies that indicate a staggering lack of diversity, not just racially and ethnically, but politically in churches. As recently as two years ago, in a survey, survey of over 1,100 regular churchgoers, there was a split in how folks responded to the question about whether there should be political diversity in church, let alone whether there is. But at least in Protestant denominations, uh, 
there seems to be very like 85% of, of one denomination or not of one um, political affiliation was the low end of, of some of those numbers. So, I mean, what have you found? Is that in reading that story in the Wall Street Journal, it seemed like there really was a lot of diversity. So what what have you found? Well, diversity is always within certain certain boundaries, right? So, um, yes, there was some level of political diversity in the in the folks represented in the Wall Street Journal, but it's pretty tight, right? I mean, there was nobody in that that was arguing for pro-choice, right? It was right. It, there's there's always a, a band that that's a that's a, a problem, and it's you, you miss out on on um, the richness of of the fullness of the body. And yet there is, it doesn't matter how narrow it is. There's always, there's always some level of difference. The question is whether or not you have a, a space to explore that and the confidence that that difference is a gift instead of a threat. And so, so it doesn't matter how broad or how narrow it is. The, the question is, how is it received and how is it processed? Right? So if, if as a, as a Trinitarian Christian, believing that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different, and yet they live in perfect self-giving love, this, 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 this eternal dance of self-giving love to, to one another, that's delight across difference in the most eternal and deepest of ways. We're created in that image. And yet we, when we've been hurt and damaged and broken by sin, our own and others, we become self-protective rather than self-giving. And that difference becomes danger instead of delight. Right. And so it's, it's uh, the political diversity is irrelevant. If you don't have the capacity to see the other as, as a site of revelation, create you know, in the image of God, where you're going to expect to discover an aspect of God that you hadn't hadn't known before, right? And so we don't live that way in relationship to difference. Uh, where we've been broken, we've been hurt, and especially in this polarized society, where our primary motive relating to the other is contempt, it's it's really uh, a challenge. One of the things I noticed um, when Corey, I started visiting the church that Corey chose to attend when he became a Christian. Um, I've belonged to and been very active in a half a dozen different synagogues in the course of my adult life. And every synagogue I've ever gone to, whether it's reform, conservative, orthodox, Hasidic, um, Jews take it for granted that if you have two Jews, you have six opinions. Right. <laughs> about everything, but we never question each other's, you know, Jewishness. So that's one, you know, when I came to Corey's church, I was frankly shocked at how uniform everybody appeared to me in appearance, in political views, um, in the stuff they chose to present to the public as who they were and what they were. It was quite shocking to me. That's that's one piece. The second piece is that a Jew would never, well, I shouldn't say that. An Orthodox observant Jew, for the most part, most of us would never have to confront this issue about laying down your life for X, Y, and Z it's just something that's built hardwired into our DNA. You know, we're not going to kill each other over eating bacon or whether you voted Republican Democrat, 
but we will die for the right to be Jewish, whatever that means. So it's kind of fascinating that these issues are important, not just important, but critical to Christians. Mm -hmm. And the last thing, as a Jew who believes in the absolute complete unity of God and approaches what we view as divisions, for example, between justice and mercy, as something that human beings do because we can't comprehend the fullness and unity of God. It's beyond our level of comprehension, but we accept that. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for playing. <laughs> can, I, can I ask a question? Absolutely. So, so, so beyond DNA, um, what, what, what makes that, what I'm interested in is what, what kinds of habits and practices are just a part of your life growing up as a Jew and in, 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 in the synagogues of a variety of sorts that provide that space for difference. Right. So, so just let me say one more, one more comment. I'm, I'm, I'm arguing for it from within a theological tradition that starts with the Trinity and I'm trying to build a build from that. And I'm curious how you would, how, not that, how does, how does being Jewish, what are the, what are the convictions and beliefs and, and then the embodiments of those that make it possible? Because that's what I want to learn. I have an answer, a very concrete answer, but I'm afraid it's not going to be satisfying for you. And I don't know if this is relevant to my son's generation or my grandchildren's generation, but me growing up Jewish, no one had to tell me that my actual physical survival on the planet was always a question, that there was always the threat that I would be killed, excluded, jailed, because I'm Jewish. And it's, you know, growing up in the shadow of the Holocaust, that was something that nobody had to teach me uh, specifically and explicitly. That was something I lived with every day, um, especially being first generation American. I appreciate that. It's, um, it actually is, I think, incredibly insightful, uh, because I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that we can get through our heads from a sort of Constantinian position of power. Um, what I did not grow up in any way, shape or form marginalized or practiced at making decisions about um, my survival in relationship to my identity, never once. And so I think this notion of laying down our lives or letting certain differences go just doesn't occur. And that's, that's an enormous challenge. I'll, I'll give you a cut. You, you just reminded me of a regular experience in my childhood. Um, I, I was a schoolyard ball player in Brooklyn in an Italian neighborhood. And I was almost on a daily basis confronted with when I heard something anti-Semitic, was I going to fight or was I going to laugh? Sometimes I chose to fight knowing I would lose the fight. Most of the times I chose to uh, find a way to get through the experience and still play ball with my friends. That's a life lesson that you take with you for the rest of your life, even though I have never been in a physical fight as an adult. 
I wonder why a lot of my friends who have never faced that, even that level of scrutiny for their beliefs or their identity, embrace this illusion of being under of being under attack our way of life is under attack our beliefs are under attack you know it's really it's really the sense of grievance that that is indeed an illusion and i wonder why it's stuck you know you, you know what i'm talking about am, am i wrong or or is there you know, I got to laugh every time I hear about the war on Christmas. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting Christmas from Labor Day till uh, till New Year's Eve. You know, yeah. for a Jew, that's such a strange thing. Yeah, I, I think I really appreciated the the book "Strangers in Their Own Land" by Arlie Hochschild, who who um, likewise just couldn't like grasp this this narrative of of victimization or marginalization and um but throughout the book the author keeps talking about every time every time an easy answer or a, or a roll of the eyes came to mind she would say i i just fell off the empathy i'm, I'm trying to climb up the empathy wall and i just fell off again so <laughs> you know and she kept falling off and i think it's hard i think it's really really hard to come to empathize with with folks that seem so alien and um and and, and often engaged in things that we find horrific. And yet, um, in some ways, I, I do a lot of that. I, I spend a lot of time with, with, I'll be honest, angry, angry white men, angry white Christians who feel attacked and marginalized. And um, much of my work in that is to help them rediscover the beauty of their faith and one that's not been mediated to them in some hijacked political ideological fashion through Rush Limbaugh or something. And so, so the only the only grammar they have is of grievance, um, and they they've lost connection with a, with another with another grammar of the faith that allows them to to participate meaningfully in a narrative instead of just as angry, you know. I want to tell you a quick story with a happy ending that has to do with this, and then I want I want to ask you about the the program. We I want to do a, a little bit of a deeper dive into the program that, that uh, the Colossian Forum is, is involved with. So I, one of my friends from this uh, Bible study, this, this class that Tommy and I did, uh, posted something, oh gosh, it was about two or three months ago, along these lines, along these lines of, you know, our beliefs are under attack and I'm, you know, whatever. I responded to him, we haven't talked in a while, uh, but we did life together. You know, we had we had spent meaningful time together, raised our kids together, did ministry work together, did got, literally got our hands dirty together for a better part of 10 years. And uh, so I thought I had like the context and the cred with him to be able to be like, Rod, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know exactly what I said, because uh, he ended up he ended up blocking me, you know, after the first or maybe the second comment, he ended up blocking me. And it really, it really cut deep. I thought, wow, you know, 10 years of real life and real work and real ministry together and one comment and he like, we can't have a conversation about it. So I, I pursued it. I pursued it and pursued it, not to like get into the argument with him to prove my point, but like the part of like being cut off, you know, really bothered me. 
And through mutual friends, um, I found out some other things about what's going on in Rod's, my, my friend's life right now. And, um, you know, got, got a secondhand account of what his impression of what I was doing. So I didn't, I didn't know if he was going to get it or not, but I sent an email to um, him uh, along with, you know, one or two other friends from, that, that were in this group together. And I basically just apologized. I was like, you know what? I, I didn't understand how this would hit you. Um, and man, I, I came across like a real asshole. I am so sorry. You know, I, I really hope that, you know, I can apologize in person. I, it really hurts to be cut off. I miss you, you know, whatever. I, it was just a heartfelt, like, you know, wow. I, I, gosh, you know, I, I was just doing tete-a-tete, like, but mm -hmm. I, you know, like whatever. Um, but I didn't realize how it was landing. Well, a couple days later, he wrote back and he apologized to me. Um, you know, told me about some things that were going, he was having some health issues that um, pain oriented, uh, physical pain oriented issues. And he was just telling me how it was, you know, affecting him and stuff. We ended up getting together. I think it was the next day after I got his email, the next day we spent the afternoon together. My heart and his heart were so full, you know, we, uh, we, we, it was just, uh, it was, it was, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. It was one of the most moving moments of at least the last several months, if not the last several years, because it was so like, so drastic, like cutting me off, you know, and cutting each other off. And, but then to be able to get together, starting by, I don't know if this is a great example or illustration of what you're talking about, about laying down your life. It was, you know, it was a day-to-day -day thing. It wasn't that big of a sacrifice, but you know, it could seem like it when you have such a vested interest or your ego or your yeah. pride has such a vested interest in being like, no, dude, there's no freaking war on Christmas to be able to get even to, wow, I was a real jerk. I am so sorry. You know, it seems like an impossible chasm that we can't cross. So by way of, uh, uh, I don't know if that's a good introduction to the Colossian way. <laughs> Well, um, I think it can be. I, mean, I, I think what you're what you're pointing to is, um, you know, a chasm you can't cross, but one that's been crafted by others. You didn't make that chasm. It's not one that that actually exists between the two of you. It's an abstraction. It's a it's a digital fiction, crafted by news cycles and political ideology, and your embodied life together is so much richer, and your history is so much richer than that. I mean, I remember Harawas talking about the the. I can't remember exact phrase, but it's something like, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge to the faith is abstraction, right? And that's why the incarnation is at the heart, uh, right? That we cannot love one another in, in the abstraction of the digital world. Uh, we need embodied life together. And that's why in the, in the, with the Colossian Forum, we've crafted this program called the Colossian Way, where we're getting people who share life together, together to actually engage in these difficult conversations as acts of worship, like engage the conflict itself as an act of worship. Yeah. And, and if the goal is worship instead of winning, you change, you change the goalposts, right? Uh, instead of winning the point, which really does very little, um, your goal is deeper love of God and love of neighbor and the fruit of the spirit. That, that changes everything. 
And when you gather in the name of Jesus intentionally, so the Colossian way is, is at its heart, what I just said, it's, it's engaging in a, in a, in a conversation about a heated topic with God as one of the participants. And that means it's an act of worship. And, and it happens in sort of gather, practice, witness, gather in the name of Jesus intentionally saying, this is who we're here for. This is the one that called us. And this is the shape of his life. And we're called to follow him here, even in this argument, asking for the spirit's presence that, that, that setup, it's like, uh, it's like rearranging the furniture in the room uh, in, in ways that new possibilities happen automatically. Um, then you can have an honest conversation about you're essentially starting where, where you and your friends started, which is we belong to each other. We belong to each other. And the ways that we belong to each other are richer and deeper than our, our divisions, which I think, uh, Ronald, that's, that's what you're discussing. That's what you're talking about is what it means to be Jewish. You belong to each other in a way that these other things are, are ancillary. They don't not. have to worry about saying that to each other. Right, right. And, and, and I, I get that we have to do that work because we clearly don't exist that way. I mean, how many Protestant denominations are there, right? I mean, it just keeps going and going and going and going. And so we have to intentionally craft a way of being together that identifies that so that when we disagree, it's under this larger umbrella of what we're doing together, which is to love each other, to be with each other in ways that deepen love of God and love of neighbor. Like, that's it. That's the goal. And, and then that doesn't mean truth goes away. It means that the truths that you believe are only being held correctly if that's what they're producing, right? Mm -hmm. So in the same way that I could be, I could argue for pacifism violently, that's a very ineffective way <laughs> to argue for pacifism, right? Because it contradicts the truth claim I'm making. And I think Christians are often doing this. They're, they're arguing for truth claims in ways that contradict the truth they're proclaiming. And so we, we need to realize that our capacity to live together across these differences is made possible by the living out of our convictions instead of the arguing for them. And in fact, the best argument for them is the living out of them. I was, I was captivated, frankly, by the structure, uh, this five-step structure of your meetings. Um, and, you know, four of the five have to do with uh, reinforcing the concept that we're here together to pray together to the same God. Yeah. Uh, I was most interested in step four. Do you have a choreography for step four? Um, what, what's step four, Dad? Step four is engage. Yeah. That's where you're actually talking about the conflict. Right. Um, let me give you just a quick background. One of the jobs I had, uh, I, I would go into schools with a crisis response team after murders, gang conflicts, racial riots, all really violent episodes in New York City high schools. And um, my job specifically as the team leader was to mediate between the groups that were in conflict. And I had a choreography for doing a mediation, you know, a step-by-step -step choreography. Sometimes it would take three days, sometimes it would take a few hours, but it was the same choreography. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious if you had a choreography for Engage. Yeah. So, I mean, the, as you named, the, the Colossian Way has, has five stages. And um, they, it really falls in this gather in the name of Jesus, practice loving each other 
while you disagree. And that has three components, you know, beginning with unity, praying together, and then the engage, and then you reflect back. But but the engage section itself does have does have a, a kind of choreography. Um, it, it in order to engage um, in a productive fashion, you have to have three things, and this comes from the literature on covenantal pluralism. You have to have some sense of safety, which means if I if I say what I think, I'm not going to be punished, or I'm not going to lose my job, or I'm not going to right. So you have to have you have to be in a situation, and that's what some of the early work is doing, right? It's creating that safe. We're we're, in, we're doing this shared thing together. The second thing is you have to have some level of literacy about about what's actually happening. And that that in our age, of course, is very, very complicated, but you have to have some baseline understanding of, of, of the events that have occurred or some level of, of, of topical understanding. And then the third thing that you need is character. You have to have the character to admit it when you're wrong and so on and so forth. So every engaged section is always kind of playing those three pieces um, with the information that you might inject to provoke a question. Uh, or, 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 or know that you're going to touch uh, what could be a landmine, and then make the next move to character. And so there's always this, this movement of the facilitator who's always kind of moving between those three, right? Say, okay, well, we, we belong to each other here, and there's this, this dispute, and um, the, the way that we're going to belong together is going to expect something of us. That's the character piece. And you're always kind of moving between those pieces. You might be raising the temperature, you might be lowering the temperature, uh, the work of Ron Heifetz on adaptive challenges talks about this all over the place. There's a productive zone. If you get too anxious, you can't do anything. If you're not anxious enough, you'll just avoid. And so you're always keeping people in that productive zone. Um, and so that the that's the choreography. Now, I don't I don't necessarily think it's going to line up with what you mean by choreography. If what if 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 my limited understanding of how mediation works, it's a slightly different thing. But that's that's how the engaged section works, embedded in that larger gather practice witness frame. See, my, my choreography um, has three major steps. Um, the first is safety. And the way we create safety is by having rules of how we're going to interact with each other. Um, you, know, you don't curse, you don't threaten, you, you know, stuff like that. The second stage is the most important stage. Um, and that's forcing people to listen to each other because people generally don't know how to listen. Generally, when people think they're listening, they're really planning their next comment. They're not really listening. So we had a whole choreography that forced people to listen. Um, someone would say something and the person on the other side had to paraphrase exactly what they were saying. And they had to keep paraphrasing until the first person agreed, yes, you really understand what I'm saying now. So my dad had this job when my brother and I were growing up and he, he would impose this uh, on Eddie and me <laughs> when we were in a fight. It was the most annoying thing ever. <laughs> you know, it's so funny to say that because I was, I was I was going for a walk with my wife this morning and we talked about that kind of uh, choreography for a conversation we're going to have with our children tonight it was exactly <laughs> that. Um, and so I would say, you know, in the in the Colossian way, the Colossian way is a five stage structure, but it happens over 10 weeks and all, all of the elements of that of, of active listening and the choreography. We do that. We 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 unpack various aspects of that over the 10 weeks in various parts of the curriculum. But the goal being you, you want to you have to learn 
those sorts of skill sets. You you got to active listening. You got to you've got to um, the the ground rules. I want to say something about ground rules though. Um, what one of the things that we don't do is establish uh, ground rules in in the in in the typical way, because those themselves have now become loaded. They're absolutely loaded. So if I establish a set of ground rules out of the gates, uh, I've just declared myself a Republican or a Democrat, and the, the game's up. <laughs> wow. And so, and so, I mean, I've seen this happen a hundred times, right? And um, and what we actually do is perhaps foolhardy, but it, it's proved relatively effective. Is we actually set the rules indirectly by saying, by gathering in the name of Jesus with the goal of loving God and neighbor more deeply, and the fruit of the Spirit being marks of that. Um, love, joy, peace, patience, kind of, you know, um, those are the guardrails. And then we hold each other accountable to that along the way. And what the danger is, you know, you can argue about whether or not that you violated that, but the upside is you actually have different takes on what the rules ought to be that are implicit that, that actually can be enlightening. Instead of making a left version or a right version, a problem, they become aspects of what we're going to need together to negotiate through um, while loving each other. And so um, we actually, what it means to love each other well becomes a big part of the argument. Mm. And I would much rather argue about what it means to love each other well than about whatever the topic that spawned it was, because that's actually what what the argument's for ultimately. We're arguing about how to live together well, no matter what you know little entry point we have. And so by shifting that argument to what does it mean to love each other well, and then for, for Christians saying uh, Jesus is the model, you know, you're, that's a, it becomes a very formative project of who is Jesus? How do we know? Who, how do I see Jesus as new? How don't I? And it just changes the terrain. Yeah, in my world, it was um, how do Crips and Bloods share the same school cafeteria without killing each other? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. What just out of curiosity? Sounds like church to me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just out of curiosity, what were some? What are some of the tells? You, you know, if you were to establish rules that, oh well, this rule would you're obviously a Democrat, or this rule you're obviously a Republican. What are some examples of that? So, at risk of eliding conservative with Republican, and but um, generally more more um, theologically conservative folks will have rules that will emphasize authority hierarchy, truth, um, capacity to speak truth. Uh, on the left, you'll, you'll get much more language of um, fairness. fairness, experience, you know, um, respecting each, each person's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a different, it's a different flavor. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, like the language of fairness and experience would be primary. Whereas on the other side, it's going to be, you know, there's, there's truth and there's doctrine. And we know the, these are the set pieces that we're not going to move away from. And the set pieces on the left are individual experience and fairness. And those, those are the kind of tells. And they have a thousand ways of manifesting themselves. Um, and in a good trusting environment, you can come up with a kind of mediatorial language, but you, are, you have to already trust each other for that to work. And that's often not the case. Yeah. How have the events over the last month or, you know, even running up to the election and, and post-election, how have those, how has that affected the kinds of conversations that you're seeing in the groups uh, Colossian Forum is, is facilitating? Mostly uh, that groups see how important what they're doing is and 
delight that they have a practice in a structure that allows them to do it in ways that, you know, to quote your show title, not kill each other. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a sense of empowerment from having practiced this before and having experienced the possibilities that are created when we're willing to be vulnerable to each other in the presence of God, um, like new, new possibilities so that, so that when something like this happens, they can have that conversation. So uh, the, the, the group documented in the Wall Street Journal, you know, they added a session to the, to the, the small group curriculum to say, we're now going to talk about how we voted, right? And uh, it would not be a, a big deal for them to have another session and say, let's talk about our different responses to, um, you know, January 6th and January 7th, January 8th, right? Yeah. They have the, they have the skill set, And so, so there's that sort of confidence. Uh, folks that haven't experienced it are far more likely to try it because they just realize that the, the jig is up and we got nothing and we're, 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 we're willing to try something new. Um, because there's just a general exhaustion with where we are. Is your organization involved in all denominations of churches? Um, no, no. I mean, we're a relatively small organization. There are 10 of us. We've been around for a while. We've got a, a number of connections across the country. It's, it's not particularly systematic. We have a lot of connections with, with folks in the Reformed tradition, a smattering of Baptists, Methodists, Anabaptists, uh, Presbyterian, you know, that's sort of the Calvinist vein. Um, but it's really kind of a network of people that have discovered us. It's not, it's kind of random. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope it grows, man. I hope it grows. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely rooting for you. And uh, for any, any folks who might be listening, how, how can they find, how can they find you and connect with the Clashing Forum? And yeah. Yeah, colossianforum.org is the website. Um, and uh, probably the best way in would be a brand new program that we're launching called Wayfinders. So um, Wayfinders is our training program for pastors and lay people to um, learn how to process uh, the kinds of conflicts and concerns and controversies that come up by following the kind of um, choreography, right, of the Colossian way, but but it's not tied to a small group curriculum. It's, we'll give you the basic training, we'll give you some basic, this is how you structure conversation, we'll coach you through it, and that that is intended to be a, a Christian discipline, a Christian practice of conflict transformation that helps you constantly make God not only a participant, but the primary participant in, in the conversation, and to practice that over time and build capacity in the congregation to do this better and to stay in touch. I mean, oftentimes we just did a bunch of uh, calling of our constituency and new constituency, just pastors all over the country, asking them what their pain points were. And most of them were saying things like, I'm just, I'm just, I'm tapped out, endless pressure of something blowing up. Um, COVID is killing me because of all of the conflicts it's creating. And they just need, they need capacity to be able to do that themselves, to have other lay people do it, and then to stay connected to those concerns that are out there so that people in the congregation have a place to bring them, know that they're going to be welcomed and um, not just listened to, but received as a gift and a part of the life of the body. And so that's, that's what, we're, uh, what we're doing right now. And of course, the Colossian way is this, you can take up different topics and run a small group to practice, and we've got training for that as well. Um, so that, that, that's the best way, colossianforum.org and uh, lots of different on-ramps. 
So the Colossian way you're helping to facilitate conversations through a, a, a program and wayfinders, it sounds like you're, you're training facilitators. Is that fair to say? Yeah. The Colossian way is our mode or our choreography of engaging conflict itself as an opportunity for worship or as a spiritual practice, right? And that way is the same across all of our programs, more or less. The Colossian Way topical curriculum is a small group program that includes training, uh, but 10 weeks of practice in the Colossian Way on a particular topic. It's somewhat synthetic, right? It's not, it's not a blowout at the kitchen table. It's, we know we can't talk about politics. Here's a 10 week engagement that will teach you how to do it well and you practice the Colossian way. Wayfinders isn't tied to a curriculum or a topic. It's just oh, the Colossian way and uh, the support training and coaching and support and feedback, sort of how are these going? Um, that's So it's not tied to a 10-week small group engagement. Okay, great. Did you have questions for us, Michael? How did you, I, I'm curious how the show came to be. The title of the show is, is, is fantastic and timely. And I'm just curious, I, 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 this is my, my attempt to give you a chance to show about, you've been doing it for me for an hour. So. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we kept the name of the show. I was toying with the idea of changing it to something like the purple district podcast or something like that. But my dad, my brother and uh, Julie Mason all agreed that uh, they, they, they like the title, keep the title. Well, this program is a direct outgrowth of conversations my dad and I have been having for the better part of 20 years, if not our whole lives. You know, but especially since I'd become a Christian, we often found ourselves around a fire pit or around a table, often with a whiskey or a beer or a glass of wine or something, um, with one of my friends from church or somebody that had a different political disposition or theological disposition and having conversations just like these you know, from, I realized in 2008, and it really became clear once McCain picked Palin as his running mate, I was really rooting for Lieberman at that time. Within literally about a half hour after the first time I heard her speak, I realized the most important political issue for me isn't necessarily a political issue. It's how we talk to each other how we reflect, are we reflecting a loyal opposition's point of view? Or are we combating with an enemy in that engagement? And it's obviously only gotten worse. I mean, certainly January 6th, I I don't know if if that's when it all came to, to a head or if that's the beginning of something, you know? So, I'd been thinking about this for a long time. I fell in love with the podcast medium. I've produced in theater, a little bit of other other mediums, you know, producing a couple other programs and just thought, man, let's give this thing a whirl, you know? And uh, I'm going to do something that I never do. I, I'm going to interrupt Corey for a second. You, <laughs> that's my life. You never do that. <laughs> so I, I grew up uh, with the understanding that the survival of the Jewish people was directly connected to my ability to raise Jewish children. You're welcome. Who marry Jewish wives. You're welcome. And practice Judaism. Well, I met the Jew in Alabama. 
and if, <laughs> if, I, if I if I failed in that mission, my life was a failure because I was contributing to the death of the Jewish people after two thousand years of survival. Yeah. Meanwhile, when when um, when you're interrupting, and I'm I, your of course I'm interrupting. When Zayda the first time Zayda was curious, he asked my grandfather. I called him Zayda. Uh, I said, I met this wonderful girl in Alabama. His first question, is she Jewish? Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I met the Jew in Alabama. Had I I, I dated a non-Jewish girl, my grandmother would have threatened to sit Shiva, which means that I was dead. (laughs) My parents would stop talking to me and I'd have to go and find a way to live and support myself. And and, and when, when Corey announced that he was a Christian, I was confronted with the reality of, um, What's more important to me, my relationship with my son and future grandchildren, or this belief that I should reject him completely because he rejected Judaism. And I came to the um, conclusion that my relationship with Corey was more important to me than the rest of that stuff. You didn't come to that conclusion right away. It was something that you genuinely struggled with. Well, if I came to it right away, it wouldn't have been a significant conflict for me. The fact that it took time to process, you know, was an indication of how significant that decision was. That led Corey and I both down a road of learning how to listen to each other, respect each other, accept each other even when we disagreed with each other on, on, on really profound things that were important to us in a profound way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that translated into Corey's commitment to finding a way for people to talk to each other in productive ways. Now my challenge with this program, I, I had a conversation with a fellow named Charlie Sykes yesterday. Um, he, terrific, well-read, intelligent. He's a prominent, he used to, he used to have a conservative radio show, uh, leading figure, especially in the Midwest. And uh, we, we were talking about, is there, are there people that we just can't even have the conversation with? And I'd like to keep that circle as wide as possible. Um, no, as narrow as possible that you can't have the conversation. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I mean. You know, for, for Charlie, he, he, can't, he can't get past someone, like we were talking in particular with politicians, he can't get past someone who voted to overturn a free and fair election. It, it's just a, it's a borderline for him. Yeah. I, I'm trying to, understand uh i live in a district that's very purple it was um 350,000 votes plus or minus and the republican mike garcia won by less than one tenth of one percent 333 votes and i'm trying to understand be on at least be understanding of that night january 6th how he brought himself to vote to object to the electoral college votes of arizona and pennsylvania and I'm still having a hard time with it, but I, I will say that I'd like to think that I'd, if I were in that situation, even having read all of the vicious, vile, threatening comments that he'd received uh, from various factions, 
that I'd still have the courage and the integrity to vote to affirm those electoral college votes. But anyway, the bigger conversation is, are there folks that I just can't include? Yeah. Are there disqualifiers, you know? Yeah, I have, I have two questions. And one, one goes to your story, Ronald. Um, you decided to love and stay in relationship with your son. Do you see that as a repudiation of your Judaism or a fresh expression? A fresh expression. If I have to, if I have to choose one or the other, I'm not sure that those categories are especially relevant. Um, one of the things that draws me to Chabad, which is an ultra-Orthodox movement within Judaism, is that the emphasis is the emphasis in Chabad isn't how observant you are, rule by rule by rule. Uh, at Chabad, Corey would be considered, Corey is Jewish. He doesn't have a choice. Corey is Jewish. He can't not be Jewish. And he lives his life in a very Jewish way. One of the things that he does that's not so Jewish is believing in Jesus Christ as a divine, you know, as a reflection of, of, of the divine. But, you know, in 80% of his life, he's as observantly Jewish as I am. Uh, when, I, when I've gone to Chabad, even, you know, after- He always gets a, an aliyah. He always, like, who's yeah. getting an aliyah? Last time I went, he, he had me late filling. The, uh, you know, the- The stuff you wrap on your arm six days a week. Yeah, yeah, so. So, so the reason I want to ask that, because I want to connect it to what you're saying, Corey, which is this, this how far can we stretch? How far, how far can we love? How far can we stay in relationship? And it's, it strikes me that the conversation you were having with your friend is in, at one level being done at a level of abstraction mm. from yeah. your actual who you are. It's, it's been focused on an, on, an, on an item that's outside the two of you, and it's been predetermined by, by other sources of what your options are. And, and you know your father's love for you and the, the capacity for him to negotiate these categories in, in fresh ways, even if it's still orthodox, um, has to do with the embodied relationship. And, and that if we're going to find ways to continue to stay in relationship with folks on, on whether or not you vote for it as a free and fair election, you're probably gonna have to have a life that's thicker than whether or not it was a free and fair election. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. I, I've talked about this before where I try not to engage in those online conversations unless I have an actual relationship with the person. It never seems to go well. You know, it just it just becomes sort of contentious in, in all the wrong ways. Yeah, so. I just think we're working against the grain with um, with the pre. I mean, they're essentially canned arguments that come to us through our news feeds. Yeah. And they're meant to perpetuate the next click. And it's not that they're not important and it's not that we don't believe them, but but we forget what they're for. Right. Ultimately, the person that's you know voting one way or the other on a free and fair election wants a just society. But that's not part of the conversation anymore. It's litmus tests. You're with me or you're against me. And, 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 um, and that's just not how life actually works. So how do we put ourselves in relationships that are more complicated and more supple 
than as they're being mediated to us. And it's especially hard during a pandemic when, you know, our lives are all virtual now anyways. And, and uh, but I mean, there's all kinds of evidence that, that you know, uh, online or less embodied forms of communication include more cortisol and less oxytocin, right? Like we've got physiological things going on that are making this happen to us. Yeah. And we've got to be cognizant of that and situate ourselves differently. See, the good thing about being religious is the confidence of knowing that God has a plan and, and it's going to be okay. And the story isn't over. When, my story isn't over when I die, you know, in my earthly existence, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that gives me great comfort and the ability to look beyond the immediate disagreement I may be having with somebody. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it gives you, it gives you that larger, wider horizon in which to be related than the the very tight, narrow binary litmus test that's, that's offered. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming in and taking the time. I value having learned a little bit more about the Colossian Forum. Before we wrap up, tell us one more time how to find the Colossian Forum. Colossianforum.org. That's uh, Colossian singular, forum.org. And C-O-L-O-S-S-I-A-N forum.org. Correct. Terrific. Is there a charity you want to promote? That is the charity, Dad. They're a nonprofit, right? <laughs> well, I mean, he didn't say that, that people can contribute money to him. He didn't say oh. that. Yeah, if you, if you don't want the if you don't want to sign on to the program, just cut us a check. That'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could. We we often ask our guests uh, if they want to uh, plug a, a charity, a nonprofit, or something. But uh, you know, being the Jew, I was worried about money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I mean, honestly. Uh, Christian peacemakers, Christian peacemakers, go, go Google them. All right. They, yep. The problem is, is they're going to get read as a crazy leftist group and they're not, but anyways. Yeah. I, I, I want to champion discernment. There is, you know, to, to, to see with a, a clearer set of eyes, you know, yep. but that's, that's a whole other conversation. Anyway, Michael, thank you so much for coming in. It's great getting to know you a little bit better and getting to know a little bit more about the Colossian Forum. And uh, thank you. Yeah, it was great to get to know a little, get to know you both. I appreciate you both being here. Had a great time. Be well, Michael. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.